When Dean and John asked me to speak on Palm Sunday, I felt very honored. It's a privilege to speak on a day like this. And then I realized that this year, Palm Sunday falls on April Fool's Day. <laughs> kind of question their motives there, but uh, whether I'm a fool or not, I'm still honored to uh, speak today, uh, honored to be here. So turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. John 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I don't know what you think of when you think about the month of April. Maybe some of you think about the beginning of baseball season. I'm sure Pastor Dean is thinking that way. Uh, Go Dodgers. But probably many of you as Christians think about Easter. That's the natural connection we have to April. But I think for many students, if you're in school, you're probably thinking about something else. You're probably thinking about spring break and also the end of school. Because when you get to April, the end of school is just around the corner. It's like another two months. And at least for me, when I was in school, that's how I thought. When I got to April, I was, I was already packing it in. I was like, oh, we're, I'm going, man. I'm, I'm done. And it's even worse if you're graduating. If you're a senior in high school or college, man, when April comes around, it's, you know, senioritis big time. And you're just, you know, I'm, you're not even listening to your teachers. You're thinking about the future. You're thinking about graduation. There's some fear there because you're going on to this next phase of life. And, you know, you're changing and you're, you're moving. You're doing something new. But there's also a lot of excitement. There's a lot of excitement. You're thinking, man, what is God's incredible will for my life, right? Because every 18-year-old is the next big thing, and I was that way too. And so I was like, what is God's huge, incredible plan for my life? What am I going to be doing? You know, I'm so excited. And that's how I felt. A little bit of fear, but a lot of excitement. And I think that's how the disciples are feeling as we read this passage. They're excited. They've been following Jesus for about three years, a little over that, And they've had their ups and downs. They've seen some incredible ministry, some incredible miracles and teachings. But they've also left behind their family. They've left behind their occupations. They've had to travel around the countryside. Sometimes they're sleeping outdoors. They've been rejected by people. It's been tough. But the reason they're able to do this and to keep going is because they don't think Jesus is just an ordinary rabbi. They don't think he's an ordinary teacher. They believe that he is the Messiah. He is the future king of Israel, right? And when he becomes king, that's going to benefit them. And so they've been following him. And finally, finally, after about a little over three years, Jesus begins to travel to Jerusalem. 
And everybody realizes that this isn't an ordinary trip. This isn't just an ordinary journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. This is something big. Jesus is going, and everybody thinks he's going to take over. He's going to become king. And it says in Luke that the crowds are scared. They're afraid. Because when revolutions happen, they don't tend to be very good for peasants. So the crowds are scared, but the disciples are excited. They feel a little bit of fear, but they're excited too. They're a little bit afraid because Jesus keeps saying some really weird stuff about picking up your cross and following him. And it seems kind of pessimistic, and they don't quite get it. But they think maybe, they probably think that maybe Jesus is talking about what happens to captives of war. Because when Romans would take prisoners of war, they would often crucify them in view of the opposing army to demoralize the other army. And so the disciples may think that Jesus is saying that some of them will be casualties in this, in this struggle. But they think that ultimately Jesus is going to win. He's going to win. He's going to use his supernatural power to overthrow the Romans, to, to set up his government, to become king. And when Jesus becomes king, his disciples become his nobility. Right? They become his governors his, his political advisors, his generals, and, and so it's exciting. And Palm Sunday probably feels like a graduation ceremony to these disciples. Probably feels like they're graduating. And so as they're going in on Palm Sunday to Jerusalem, the crowd is, is cheering for Jesus. It's, you know, roaring. I, I don't know if you remember what it felt like when you graduated. I, I remember my graduation ceremony, especially from college, and how I felt uh, walking into that auditorium. It was amazing, the, the roar of the crowd. And I, had, I played sports, so I heard people cheering uh, before. Not usually for me, but I heard people cheering. Um, but I never heard anything quite like that. It was, it was a different feeling when you're graduating. Just that, that, that incredible rise from the crowd. And the, that's what the disciples are feeling. The crowd is cheering for Jesus. And, and they're cheering for him in the capital city. This is in Jerusalem. The people of Jerusalem are recognizing Jesus as king. This isn't a backwater province. They're not in Galilee anymore, right? not in Kansas anymore here. You know, this is, this is big time. Okay, this is the capital city. The people of Jerusalem have finally figured out that Jesus is their king, and they're recognizing him. And for the disciples, this is it, man. This is what they've been waiting for. They're graduating from being disciples to becoming royalty. And each of them is now thinking, okay, who's going to have the most power in this new kingdom, right? Who's going to, who, what position will I have? What is Jesus' wonderful plan for my life in his new kingdom? And it's an exciting time. And then as you read about Passion Week, and I hope you will take this week to, to read the, the accounts of Passion Week, you can feel the intensity building, the energy building. Jesus goes into the temple and he, he clears out the temple. He throws out the money changers, and that would have been taken as an act of rebellion, Right? It acted defiance against the, the status quo, against the authorities. Jesus is going in and he's saying, we're not going to do the things this way anymore. I'm setting up my own rules. You know, this is my house. I'm, I'm making the rules now. And the authorities don't take real kindly to that. They want to kill him. They send soldiers to arrest him. The soldiers are mesmerized by him. They won't arrest him. And, and then he challenges the authorities and he's, he's making them look pretty stupid. And you can just feel the energy building, the intensity building toward a climax. And in the midst of this, on Thursday night, the day before Passover, Jesus and his disciples decide to have a special Passover meal on Thursday nights. And I think if, if Palm Sunday felt like a graduation ceremony for these disciples, I think that this Passover dinner probably felt like a grad laureate dinner. It's an, it's an intimate meal with the master 
on the eve of the revolution. And they're celebrating God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And they're also looking forward to Jesus' deliverance of his people. The disciples think that's going to be from Rome. We know that that ultimately is going to be from sin at the cross. But it's an exciting evening. And so there's only one problem. As they go into this large banquet room that they have rented, they see water in a a basin, but there's no slave there to wash their feet. In this culture, it's very important to have clean feet when you go to a nice meal like this. Uh, The way they would have meals, these, these fancy meals like this, they would have a table that's about a foot off the ground, and people wouldn't sit in chairs. They would lay, they would recline on big pillows. It's really comfortable but you want to have clean feet because people's feet are kind of close to each other. And, and, you know, people back then wore sandals and the roads are, you know, they're not filthy, but animals are doing what they do, you know, and you're stepping in it. And, and so your feet are kind of gross. And you don't want to have a nice meal with gross feet. But it's also pretty disgusting to wash people's feet. That's a pretty gross job. And so for a meal like this, typically the lowest slave would be responsible for washing people's feet. But they come in, and, and there's no slave there. And this is a shameful job. There's actually a law at this time that rabbis cannot make their disciples wash their feet. That's how shameful this is. And so everybody's just kind of frozen. Well, what do we do? And it, custom dictates if there's no slave there, then the lowest disciple is the one who should go and wash people's feet, the lowest person in the group. And nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to admit that they are the lowest disciple because if you admit it now, you'll always be viewed as the lowest disciple. That will always be how people view you. And in Jesus' new kingdom, you'll have the lowest position. You'll be the lowest person on the totem pole. Right? And that shame will stay with you and with your family forever. And so nobody wants to go, and it's awkward. And they, they go and they sit by the, at the table, and they're, they're, they're eating, and, it, and they, they feel really awkward. And in Luke 22, which is a parallel version of this story, we see that the disciples begin to argue about who is the greatest. And I think it's in relation to this problem. They're trying to figure out who the greatest one is so they can then figure out who the lowest one is and try to pressure that person to wash feet. And so you can kind of imagine how this might have gone. You know, Peter saying, well, you know, I'm the greatest because I have the thickest beard and the deepest voice and... And, and John's like, well, no, I'm the, I'm the greatest because, you know, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. You know, we're, we're tight, we're close. You know, Matthew, you, know, you're, you, you used to be a tax collector, you wash feet. And just kind of going back and forth like that. And it's in that context then that our second passage for today begins. In John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Let's pause there for a second. So Jesus knew that his time had come. Imagine how you would feel if you knew that tonight, in a matter of hours, you were going to be arrested, 
You're going to be tortured, and you're going to be brutally, brutally executed. How would you act? I know for me, I'd, I'd be pretty panicky, okay? I'd be like, oh, I got to get out of here. I need to escape. And if I can't escape, if there's no way I can get away, then I'm probably pretty preoccupied with myself, right? I'm, I'm, I'm wallowing in self-pity at this point. Oh, you guys, I'm about to die. Don't you get this? And, you know, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, oh, come on, guys, wash my feet. Don't you, don't you know what I'm about to do for you? But Jesus doesn't do that, right? He's not, he's not panicked right now. He's not trying to escape. He's not preoccupied. He's not wallowing in self-pity. Instead, amazingly, he decides that now, right before he's going to be arrested, now is the right time for him to show the full measure, the full extent of his love to his disciples. And the Greek here, it literally says he loved them until the end. And you could take that as he loved them to the end of his life, but most scholars think that John is trying to say that he loved them to the end of himself. He loved them to the utmost. He loved them to the max. He loved them with all that he had. He showed them the full implications of his love right now. And he even loves Judas, right? This guy who's about to betray him. Jesus loves him. And John makes it very clear that Jesus is in control here. He's not weak. He's not naive. He's not caught by surprise. He's not having an identity crisis. He's not like, oh, maybe I'm not really the son of God. Maybe I should wash feet. No, Jesus isn't doing that. He knows who he is. He knows where he's going. He knows where he came from. He knows that he is the Son of God and that the Father has put all things under his power. That 1 John 1, that he made the universe, that he sustains the universe, that he sustains the lives of his disciples. If he wants to, he looks at Judas and he says, Judas, stop breathing. It's over. Judas is dead. He has that kind of power and he knows he has that kind of power. He knows he came from God and he's returning to God. Someday every knee is going to bow before him, as the choir sang. He knows that. And that sense of identity, that sense of mission, is what enables him to selflessly love his disciples just hours before his arrest and torture and death. Just a side note, I think if we had a better understanding of our identity and our mission, we'd be able to serve more like Christ. You know, if we really understood this and we really believed that we were made by God and for God... And we're going to return to God. We're going to spend eternity with God. An eternity that's a lot better than the best vacation or the best retirement that you can imagine here on earth. If we really believe that, man, then wouldn't we, wouldn't we be willing to just sacrifice our lives for people and for the cause of Christ now? It'd be so much easier. I mean, most of our lives are caught trying to make things better for ourselves. But if we believe, man, I'm here for God's glory and I'm going back to him, man, it'd be so much easier to wash people's feet. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So outer clothes here literally means all your clothes down to your underwear. Okay. If I stood up here as your pastor and I began to take off my clothes... You'd feel really awkward. Okay, don't think about it too hard. But, <laughs> no. but you would feel really, really awkward, okay? And you would have some idea of how Jesus' disciples felt as their great Lord, their great Master, stood up from this important meal and began to strip down to his loincloth. I mean, it's just unheard of in that culture. It's, it's unheard of in our culture. 
Imagine a, an important CEO standing up in the middle of a business meeting and stripping down to his underwear. You know, you'd take him away to the mental hospital. There's something wrong with that guy. And yet that's what Jesus does. Okay, he strips down in front of his disciples, this great master. And then he goes and he wraps a towel around his waist like a slave. And he goes to that, that bucket, that basin that all the disciples thought they were too important to touch. And he takes it, and he begins to wash feet. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. I, I love Peter here. He has a real knack for recognizing the obvious. You know, Jesus is going around. He's got the, the basin. He's got the towel. He's washing people's feet. He gets to Peter, picks up Peter's foot, and Peter's like, whoa, my goodness, you're going to wash my feet? What are you doing? It's like, duh, yes, Columbo, I am going to wash your feet. No, Jesus is very gracious here. And he says, Peter, I I know this doesn't make sense to you. I know this violates your sense of propriety. I know you can't see the big picture and you don't know what this symbolizes. You don't know what I'm about to do for you at the cross. So trust me, Peter, just trust me. You'll understand it later. I think that's often Christ's message to us in our circumstances. Trust me. Trust me. I know these circumstances in your life don't make sense to you. I know it seems to violate your sense of what is right and fair. But you can't see the big picture. You don't know what I know. So just trust me here. Just trust me. Just believe my promise that I'm working all things out for the good of those who love me. Trust me. Of course, Peter responds the way we often do in verse 8. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And that sounds kind of spiritual, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like Peter saying, oh, Jesus, you're too good to wash my feet. I can't let you do that. You you know, I'm, I'm too spiritual to let you do that. But what he's really saying here is, no, Jesus, I won't trust you. I understand this situation better than you do. Okay, you're the Lord. I'm the servant. You're doing something really stupid here. You're doing the wrong thing, and I'm not going to cooperate with you, Jesus. I I see things better than you do here. That doesn't sound so spiritual suddenly, does it? You know, we can always make our disobedience sound spiritual, but it always comes down to us thinking that we know better than Christ and being unwilling to trust him enough to obey him. And so Jesus gives a pretty harsh reply here. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is saying, Peter, unless you let me clean you, we can't have a relationship. Okay, I'm a holy, pure God. I am righteous. I cannot have a relationship with sin. I cannot be tainted with evil. And you are a proud, dirty man. And you cannot wash yourself. You don't even realize how dirty you are. And you cannot clean yourself. You cannot come to me. You have to let me come to you. You have to let me serve you, me clean you, for us to be able to have a relationship. And if you don't let me do that, we don't have a relationship, Peter. Verse 9. Then Lord, Simon replied, not just my feet, but my, my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. So naturally, Peter overcompensates here. 
Uh, you know, I love Peter. He, he really does love Jesus. Okay, he, he's always sticking his feet in his mouth, both of them, at the same time. But uh, Peter really does love Jesus. He really, ultimately, he does trust Jesus. And Jesus says, I know, Peter. I know you love me. We do have a relationship. You are in me. You have been cleaned. And the reason Jesus can say that is because he's going to the cross. And at the cross, his work, his payment for sin applies both forward and backwards in history to God's people. And so Jesus says, you are covered, Peter. You're in me. You love me. You trust me. I know that. You've had a bath. I think that's what he means here. But he still says, Peter, I need to wash your feet. I still need to wash your feet. And I, I think beyond the physical significance of that, I think he's saying, Peter, I still got to clean you. <laughs> you, still, you still step in stuff, Peter. You still get some sin on your feet. You know, you're still a little bit dirty sometimes, and I still have to clean you up. And you need to allow me to continue to sanctify you, continue to help you grow and become like me. I think that's part of the significance here. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So for ap- my application for this passage, I have two questions. First, are you willing to allow Jesus to serve you? Are you allowing Jesus, have you allowed Jesus to cleanse you of your sins? Have you recognized like Peter... That the only way for you to have a relationship with God is to allow God to come to you. To allow God to cleanse you. You can't wash yourself. You can't clean yourself. That's your only hope, to allow God to clean you. Have you recognized that Jesus went to the cross? He took the punishment for your crimes against God on the cross. All of your crimes against God. Whether they're big crimes, big crimes like killing people, Or whether they're little crimes, like killing people in little ways with your attitudes and your words and and your small behaviors every day. All of those crimes against God, which God hates every one of them. He can't stand sin in his presence, evil in his presence. And he's just, and he he has to punish crime. He has to punish evil. We want him to, ultimately, to punish evil. We just don't want him to punish our evil, but we want him to punish evil. And so to do that, and yet to be able to be merciful to us, Jesus, God, went to the cross for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins. He paid the price. Have you believed that? Have you accepted that? When I go overseas, uh, I like to try to explain this by telling a story um, on mission trips. Uh, I call it my, it's going to sound bad, but I call it my dirty dog story. Um, when you go overseas to developing countries, you'll often see these, these dirty street dogs that are running around. They're not cute little dogs like we have here, or even cute big dogs. These are, these are nasty dogs, right? They're, they're like scraggly. They're, they're covered in filth. They got like fleas and lice and, and who knows what they're infected with. And they're just gross. And they're running around and you don't want to touch them. Once in a while, you'll see one that looks kind of cute, but you still don't want to, you know, get close because they're kind of gross. They're very gross. 
And so I'll tell people, imagine that you're standing in the doorway of your house, and you look out, and you see a street dog out there. Nasty dog, just covered in filth and and nastiness and, and fleas and all this stuff. But for some reason, your heart goes out to that dog. And you say, oh, I, lo- I, really, I really love that dog. And you're just kind of looking at it, and you're like, man, that's a, that's a cute dog. And, but you can't just bring it into your house. You can't be like, oh, come on in, dog, because it's nasty. I mean, it's this gross dog. It's got poo and all kinds of stuff on it. It's going it's to be running around in your house. You wouldn't want that. No way. There's no way that dog is coming into your house. But you realize that if, if you just let that dog continue on as he is, he's just going to be a street dog always. He's going to die in the streets. And so you're like, oh, what I do? And you realize, well, if I, I could go and I could clean him up. I mean, that would be really crazy, but I could, I could take a bucket. I could scrub him down. I could get the, you know, the de-louse de stuff and, and you know, disinfect him and take him and get, get some shots, get some vaccinations. I could do that. And it, crazy, almost irrationally, you decide to. And so you get that bucket of water and you go out and you begin to call to the dog. And now it's on the dog, right? If the dog won't come to you, if he runs away, he's a street dog forever. You know, he can't come into the house. But if he comes and he allows you to clean him up and to do what's needed for him to be clean, then he can come into your house. He can become part of the family. And I know that's very simplistic, but I think that's kind of what God has done for us. We are dirty street dogs. You don't think you are, but you are. I think street dogs, street dogs probably don't think they're dirty. They're rolling with other street dogs. They're all the same. But they're dirty. They're filthy. And that's what we are compared to God. And God looks at us. And he loves us. I don't know why, but he does. He loves us. We're made in his image. And he sees us, and then he looks at his son, and he says, son, I want you to go, and I want you to do what's necessary to clean them up. I want you to go make it possible for them to be clean. And the son does. Jesus does. He's done everything necessary, and now he calls to us, and he says, come. Come to me. Let me clean you up. Let me bring you into God's family. Let me bring you in and allow you to live with my father forever in his home. Now the choice is on us, right? If we, if we say, no, no, I'm fine, then you'll always be a dirty street dog. You'll die apart from God and you'll continue to exist apart from God in an even worse place. But if you'll come to him, if you'll say, okay, Jesus, you can clean me, I'll let you clean me. And you'll live with God forever. To be part of God's family right now. That's a pretty incredible offer. I think a very, very, very stupid response to that would be like, well, I'm not really that dirty, Jesus. I'm, I'm not that dirty, and your father's not that great if he won't let me come into his house as I am. I mean, he must not be that loving. I mean, fine, I'm just going to spite him and not be cleaned. That's a, that's a stupid response. And yet I, I hear that from people all the time. That's really dumb. Man, just say, okay, Jesus, I take you at your word. I'm dirty. Maybe I don't see how dirty I am, but I'm dirty. I, I believe you about that, and I believe that you can clean me, and I'll let you clean me. Man, that's all it takes. Do it. Are you letting Jesus cleanse you? Are you letting him serve you? And then the second question is, are you willing to serve like Jesus? As a Christian, are you willing to serve like Jesus? You know, God's definition of greatness is very different from ours. And I think that's true even among committed Christians. It's easy to talk about the great service we're going to do for God, the the mission trips we'll go on, the outreach that we're going to do, the ministries that we'll be a part of. And those things are are well and good. They're good. But in the midst of our big talk and our radical dreams, I think Jesus is asking us, 
whose feet can you wash today? Not literally, unless somebody needs it and wants it, but really, who, whom can you humbly serve today without expecting anything in return? Kid, kids, young adults, are you washing your parents' feet? Are you honoring them? I'm sure you, if you're a Christian, you probably have some big dreams about how God is going to use your life for his glory. That's great. I'm all for that. But are you pleasing him right now? Are you honoring your parents right now? That's what God tells you to do now, to obey him. And parents, before you get too excited, are you washing your children's feet? Are you not simply demanding their obedience, but are you seeking to love and guide them and not exasperate them? Are you, are you seeking to, to help them? Are you washing their feet? How about your spouse's feet? You know, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that if you don't treat your spouse right, God may not answer your prayers. It's that simple. Are you praying for something that you really want to see happen? You really want to see God use you in some big way? Maybe you want to see God prosper your career, prosper your business so that you can bring him glory. But it's not happening and you're frustrated. Maybe, just maybe, you should take a look at how you're treating your spouse. Because that's, that's the basics, right? If you're not honoring God in that, why should he bless you in something bigger than that? That's foundational. How are you treating your coworkers? Are you washing their feet? Right after talking about spouses, Peter goes on and he says, we should live such good lives among the pagans that they will glorify God on the day of Christ Jesus. Are you seeking to wash the stinky feet of that obnoxious coworker in the, the cubicle next to you? Are you living such a good life among your coworkers that they might turn to Christ and glorify God? I know it's not easy, but it's the life that we've been called to as disciples of Jesus. And remember, verse 17, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Okay, God does have big plans for your life. He does want to bless you and lift you up and honor you so that you can honor him. But the path to blessings and glory in God's kingdom is not by putting yourself first. It's not by obsessing over God's will for your life and all the great things that you're going to do for him. It's by lowering yourself and washing the feet of people around you just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, I feel the weight of this message because there's so much that hangs in the balance. Father, I pray that you would, God, that you would draw people. Lord, that you would help people see how much you love them, that you want to cleanse them of their sins. And if people, if there are persons here who haven't done that, Father, would you convince them, would you draw them? Lord, would you pour out your love onto their lives to turn them to you? We know that it's the love of God that brings us to repentance. I pray, Father, that your mercy and your love would be poured out in people here. Draw them, help them to just surrender themselves to Christ and let him clean them up and do what's necessary. And Lord, I know it's so hard when we see this example of your service to imagine ourselves serving like that. But I pray, Father, that in little ways every day you would give us the grace and the power to serve like Jesus did. 
We thank you, Lord. We, we know that you don't seek to condemn us, but you call us to live like Christ. Thank you in the name of Jesus.